32 counties united by people my name is una and my name is andrea and this is united United ireland Ireland. (laughs) every week on united ireland we go backstage and simultaneously under the hood don't know how we're doing that of issues in ireland beyond the headlines bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about without a lot of people shouting at each other in the studio this week's question how can communities buy their local pub Mm, juicy um, this podcast runs entirely on the fuel generated by Bitcoin servers. No, from, from Patreon. Put some petrol in our tank over at patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. Do you love saying that? It's so funny. It's, it's a good one. And first, we are going to the state of the nation. Ah, sweet nation. Uh, the state that you... you Oh, sweet nation, the state you are in. Uh, this week we were hit uh, with the AstraZeneca news, um, the, the first bump in the road of the vaccine. That uh, Just the first one. Just the first. It's been, it's been a, a very good moving machine so far. But yeah, the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine has been put on hold, pulled from being given to people those who have had their first dose aren't getting it anymore and there's 30,000 people who will not be receiving it now because um, news of blood clots. Now I have been I have been forensically watching the news uh, aka Luke O'Neill on Twitter who has uh, been sharing all the uh, information that it has actually been um, it's actually not very dangerous. Now who am I to say as I'm not a an expert on blood clots. But the one thing I would say is that uh, one in 1,400 women on birth control develop clots. And there has been 30 out of 17 million um, people on AstraZeneca. So you do have to wonder where our priorities lie. Well, you don't have to wonder. We've had a week from hell for women. But like things that affect women, it's grand. Things that affect the greater population, oh, we better put that on hold. Uh, so that's a question I'm holding up. Hmm. Um, what are your thoughts? Um, I don't really as, have, as a non-blood clot expert. <laughs> I don't really have any thoughts on it. I think that it's kind of logical that if because it's uh you know a new medicine that if there are concern any concerns about it, people have to be super duper careful. Um, whether those concerns whether the blood clot thing is linked to the actual vaccine or whether that's just people who had blood clots for something else or... You need to find out. Yeah, you need to find out, so... But why are they not finding out about birth control? I think there's, like, things that are accepted risks uh, and side effects. And I think that vaccines have a different kind of discourse around them, really, don't they? Because... um, it can be seized upon by anti-vaxxers this is going to be as well yeah and I think new any new medicine or new science um, when people you know when there's any kind of hint of, of side effects people kind of freak out so which uh, is fair enough yeah um, other things that have been happening in the state of the nation uh, Leo Varadkar who hasn't been able to get away from that whole leaking a confidential copy of a uh proposed GP contract to a friend thing despite uh, the excuses and um, speeches and all that kind of stuff. I uh, really wanted to revisit that day of speeches. Uh, oh, Leo's 21st in the door? Yeah. 
<laughs> like, okay, let's go back to that when everyone's like just literally having his moment in the sun. So the investigation into that has been upgraded. Uh, I guess they're sending a file to the DPB or something, the guards, which is really serious that a serving minister is um, under investigation. Um, it's also very weird that he hasn't heard from anyone. It's all going on in the media. And like whatever we say about anything, like if you're going to do an investigation, would you not get the person involved into the into the mix? Well, I'm sure, like, I think, what do you mean that, that, like Leo keeps going, I've said I'll talk to the police. I've said I'll talk to the police. I've talked to my sister. I've said we're open, blah, blah, blah. And then it's literally like, and they're launching a probe now. So it's Yeah, like, well, I think initially they're making inquiries and then they turn it into a, you know, criminal or investigation or whatever. And then that's when you carry out more of the more of the things. And obviously... Yeah, I'd like to launch an investigation into that because it's just, <laughs> it just seems a very bizarre way to go about things. And it's like... You don't get a fair trial then if you're living it out in public life. I know you're in public life, but it just seems very bizarre. As yep. a law expert, I might as, need to yes, As a lawyer. Uh, yeah, so we'll see what happens to that. Of course, um, the Greens um, and Micheál Martin have confidence in Leo Varadkar, uh, which is weird because you'd imagine you'd wait for an investigation to conclude before you'd say that you know that the person is right or whatever. Which anyway. Also, uh, is an interesting, our incoming uh, Justice Minister saying that it was definitely Grant. Like, um, I think you yeah. might be doing things as well there. Heather Humphreys. Yeah, Humphreys. that was that was pretty, pretty ropey, I thought. Uh, her little preemptive remark. Uh, what else is going on in the Nation? Uh the Catholic Church is refusing to bless same-sex marriages as a can't bless sin. It feels like the, the, the Pope is flip-flopping. Some days he's like, yeah, we are all children of God. And then he's like, but I'm not blessing you. It's like, uh, well, go back to sleep. Like, you're, what are you doing? You're just wrecking everyone's heads. And apparently there's been an increase in calls to suicide helplines um, based uh, LGBTQIA ones um, based on this and it, what seems like a pass a simple remark has such a, a really big impact on a lot of people who are uh, religious and gay mm. um, do people want Catholic same-sex marriages some people do some people do yeah I don't know I mean Bizarre, I just I don't care like, what the Pope says to be quite honest um, like I don't get it, but a lot of people do. So you can't, like. I think. I think obviously, you know, the the Catholic Church is um, homophobic, right? So and and misogynistic. So obviously, the doctrine and the messaging and underpinning, you know, philosophies of that and theologies of that are going to echo th- those beliefs within the church. So it's no surprise to me that the Catholic Church is being homophobic because. It That's is. part of its thing. And and also, like, I, you know, I'm just not interested in, you know, calls for religious, you know, exactly. same sex ma- marriages because it's like, you know, it's a real like, why would you want to be part of that organization as a as a gay person? I understand or that. like, gay pe- Or, or the, the one thing that grinds my gears is don't you know when people are like I'm not religious but I get married in a church and mm. I baptize my children it's like you're fueling and funding this absolutely batshit foundation 
what like the business of the church why can you anyway yeah i mean obviously when the when any kind of massive leader in society like the pope says stuff like this it has a knock-on impact uh which is terrible but i don't think we could expect anything more or less from the catholic church um Obviously, there's the conversations ongoing uh, in the aftermath of the murder of Sarah Everett. And it's really interesting to see the different protests that are happening in different jurisdictions, not just prompted by that. Obviously, there was the awful behaviour of the cops uh, in London at that vigil, arresting women. Um, There have been protests in Australia uh, with regards to, you know, violence against women and in Mexico as well. It's, it's It's like... One of the, it's it's, a, it's interesting to just see oh maybe this conversation is actually clicking with people maybe this is another um, impact of people reflecting at home alone or getting really angry because they're thinking about things and have just had enough. Um, you know, would you say that maybe people aren't just hearing anymore they're actually listening? Yes, as per our Sunday soothe. Uh, yeah, so that's interesting to me. I I get very jaded about these conversations because I just feel like if the tactics of that have existed for decades around violence against women worked, we wouldn't be having these conversations again. Um, I'm not, I'm not placing the blame on, on people who are like protesting and lobbying and advocating campaigning and being act- like, obviously not. It's just very frustrating to me that the change comes so slow and there needs to be a broader listening uh, within society, I think men need to be sharing their stories of their experiences of violence, either as victims or perpetrators. And I think, you know, we need to look at state violence um, and how that becomes gendered or is internalised and meted out by people. I mean, there's no clearer articulation of that intersection of like gender gender-based violence and state violence than those images of the cops arresting women. You know, this is this is a police force that has been shown to be, you know, institutionally racist and has been violent in against multiple cohorts, including black youths, including ravers, miners, you know, environmentalists. Look at the all the arrests that happened at the Extinction Rebellion um, and this period of state violence that is now being shored up by the Tories who are, you know, Brexit as a, as a, as a mechanism of self-colonization that's happening, you know, and, and pitching these laws about like, you get 10 years if you attack a statue and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is just part of the trajectory Britain is on. And if we don't have an analysis of state violence, uh, we're not going to solve gender-based violence. I think Uh, it's all part of the broader tapestry. Um, speaking of Great Britain, like, did you see the hack of this shit new TV press studio thing they have in Downing Street? No. So they spent £2.6 million sterling on uh, some like vanity project so that Boris could look more like a cool American politician man. <laughs> and they just have the, and like they unveiled it. First of all, it's just got like four flags four Union Jacks, a podium, a kind of shit stage and a load of office chairs. And this cost two, 2.6 million quid. How would it have cost that much? Uh, who knows? They did, they did. Loads of advisors and 
marketing and PR people. No, this is the actual cost of the fit out of this studio. Now, m- mind you, they did pay that money to some random Russian company. So I don't know what's going on there. But also what I was looking at it going, like the whole thing is blue, like Tory blue. And it's like, oh, perfect. This is just amazing for like blue screening in any fucking press conference of Boris Johnson on the internet afterwards. So that was my, I can't believe nobody... Thought of that. Thought of that. Maybe they did. Maybe they did on purpose. Anyway, just suffice to say, you're going to see a lot of that, like guy playing the bongos and the like, dan- like the head nodding cat beside uh, Boris Johnson's um, uh, press conferences. But now, would you like to buy your own pub with a load of other people in your neighbourhood? Is that a solution to a hospitality uh, industry in crisis? And how can we do that? Let's talk buying your boozer. So earlier this week, uh, I wrote a piece in the Irish Times about the Community Ownership Fund, uh, which is being brought in in the UK uh, to help uh, communities potentially purchase some of their local amenities, um, including pubs and music venues and, and things like that. And uh, myself and Andre have been talking a bit about uh, co-op culture and how it offers, you know, some solutions, particularly now when hospitality has been really impacted by the pandemic. So this community ownership fund is is really interesting. And we're going to talk to someone from Cooperatives UK, Isla McCullough, who's the program manager of Community Shares Standards there, a little bit about co-ops, which have come back in some ways in Irish society, but are also not really embedded in our communities, I think, or in our economy as much as maybe as they could be and the how different the British context is to that. And also how a community ownership fund or something like it could maybe happen in Ireland. So welcome, Isla. Thanks for joining us. No worries. Nice to see you. Um, tell, tell me a little bit about your work, your job. Yeah, so I work at Co-ops UK and we're the member body for all cooperatives in the UK, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. I'm actually based up in Scotland on the West Coast as well. Um, And so my job, you know, we're here to represent, unite and develop co-ops in the broadest possible meaning of the word co-ops across the UK, which is such a diverse movement. My job is very specifically looking at community shares, and that is where community benefit societies or cooperative societies can actually raise share capital from their members. Um, And it's a bit like crowdfunding, but instead of just donating the money, people actually buy a stake in the business. You know, they become a co-owner and they have a democratic say. They're different from company shares. So no matter how much you invest in a community share offer, you still only get one vote. It's one member, one vote, not one share, one vote. And that comes down to like the core democratic principles of co-ops. Um, so that's really my focus. And we work a lot on community buyouts of pubs, businesses, renewable energy schemes, all sorts of different businesses and industries across across the UK at the moment. So the Community Ownership Fund has huge potential to support that market, I reckon. How, how do co-ops work in practical terms, like in the most simple terms, let's say? 
I think it's quite hard to say because co-op is, like I was saying, it's such an umbrella kind of term. So you've got co-ops that are worker co-ops, which might be like a group of workers all coming together to run a business together. And they all have an equal, so it's a non-hierarchical structure sometimes, you know, they all have an equal say in the running of the organization. And there's lots of like ways to make that work as well. Um, how co-ops can also be cooperatives of existing organizations. So like lots of organizations know that they can do better together when they work together. So they create what can be called like a secondary co-op of organizations where they all work better together. I work mostly with community co-ops. So that is where it's more likely to be, you know, several hundred members of the community all come together in terms of a collective ownership of a business or an organization. So as an example, I'm the chair of a community-owned greengrocer shop in um, Edinburgh in Scotland. And we all came together. We raised about 35 grand in a community share offer to start our greengrocers on the high street because there was a real dearth of like, you know, there was a need for an independent shop. People are really kind of foodie. We're kind of interested in where our food comes from. And I'm a voluntary director and we have paid staff as well. And we all work for the benefit of the community to keep the shop going. So it means we can bring in volunteers to work with us. And at the end of the day, the members that invested in us, they can get their money back out. We can pay them an interest payment on their money, but the money all circulates locally within the members and within the community. So I'm sorry, I don't actually have a straightforward answer for you. And maybe that's not what you want to hear. But I think that's what makes the movement very exciting is that co-ops can really just take all shapes and sizes. Um, my focus is on the community ownership side of things. But, you know, I've got colleagues that work in employee buyouts of businesses. So if, um, you know, a founder wants to retire but doesn't want to just sell to a big multinational, they can actually then kind of sell the business back to the employees and then they can all have an equal stake in running it in the future, which is another cool model, which is totally different from a community co-op. Do you know what I mean? But it all it's all based in the same sort of core principles, um, cooperative principles and values. In the kind of 1800s, I suppose, or the late 1800s, there was kind of a um, big movement in Ireland around cooperatives, particularly related to rural Ireland, cooperative creameries, for example. People would be familiar with kind of cooperative, um, you know, farm produce shops. Uh, And then in, in recent years, again, as people have kind of taken inspiration from the cooperative movement, um, either be that in the UK or in in Germany or or something like that, you've seen kind of urban co-ops around, uh, again, a lot of, you know, kind of food markets and things like that. But we do have a very different context because I often, you know, kind of look at stuff that's happening in the UK from like workers, beer companies and, and things like that. And it just seems to be much, much more widespread. Like how much, like what, how, what is the size of the cooperative uh, model or models in the UK or is that quantifiable? Um, I should actually know these figures off the top of my head. I think there's about 8,000 co-ops in, in total in the UK. Right. Um, maybe just a wee bit less than that in terms of like actual society models. Um, how do I say this? Yeah. I know what you mean. Like I, I, I get that it maybe seems 
like more embedded and I think there's more diversity maybe like you're saying when people think of co-op in Ireland they go oh that's like the creameries or the dairies and the agricultural co-ops and I think in Scotland for you know that's much more established as well up in Scotland like we've got a really strong agricultural co-op sector um, but in terms of other types of co-ops it's really on the fringes a lot of the time and where we're st- so even when you look at the co-op economy reports that we've published, the market's not grown massively in the last 10 years in the UK. It's actually like the number of co-ops has actually stayed pretty about the same, like a wee bit up and a wee bit down. Um, But what we have found is that they tend to be much more resilient, these organisations. So like any co-ops that are there are really in it for the long term. And where we're seeing the innovation and where we are seeing the growth is much more in the community ownership side of things rather than in the sort of, agricultural co-ops or the worker co-op model even you know there's still some of them popping up but definitely from our from our you know data that we're gathering all the growth now is in community ownership rather than in what you would consider maybe more traditional co-op ownership models Mm. that you're seeing um like for me when I think of co-ops I think of like a like a hippie vibe of like everyone namaste and and I think that's unfair because essentially what a co-op offers is a is a business utopia where everyone gets to benefit and everyone gets a say in what the type of community they want to live in and what they want provided to them and it's not driven by uh by profit so how do you go about uh maybe like rebranding it and 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 getting it into the whole but that's a really light question isn't it absolutely Andrea has her PR head on for this one you know what if you got to speak to Rose I think you would have had such a good chat as well like she's jumped in and she's like right how do we get co-ops on Coronation Street pronto like that's what it is it's like making it cool for people and making it accessible because I know that a lot of yeah, you're so right. There's definitely like a strong grouping of co-ops that are in that anti-capitalist, hippie world. And, you know, some of that's totally valid. Why would I pay or, or why would I want to work for somebody who's going to just take my labor and then pay some external shareholders when I can actually, we can all pay each other and we can all support each other a lot better. Like, at a human level, that makes sense, but it's definitely become quite politicized. Like, if you're anti-capitalist, oh, you know, it's, and I don't want to get into all of that. Like, I'm quite pragmatic. I'm like, what works? Like, what are you trying to do? And wh- instead of some of the best co-ops have emerged out of a crisis, though, you know, they are actually fighting back against the system. So, like, student co-op homes was an example last year. Student housing is a scandal in this country. And look at the way students have been treated over the course of the pandemic, where they're tied into contracts and they're not given normal tenancy rights like anyone else, because who owns the student housing? It's big corporations who don't have your vested interests at heart, like your well-being. Whereas housing co-ops specifically for students, there's a huge one in Edinburgh, about 200 odd students live in a student housing co-op. There's more and more kind of springing up. And they did a community share offer last year and were able to raise capital to buy buildings like actual houses for student homes. That is definitely a political statement. You know, that's a that's a response to a crisis. And actually, co-ops can be seen as that. That, you know, I think that's quite inspiring, but also it's a lot of work. <laughs> you know, like, yes, we can make it sound sexy and cool. And people go, hi, that's brilliant. Love it. But doing the work to make it happen is, I still think, one of the biggest barriers. And then that's where you end up 
this is my view, with a bit of a class breakdown because the people who can afford to take the time, voluntary time most of the time to get these things set up, you know, and relying on their skills, resources, who they know, that's a certain type of people. Whereas mm. folk, you know, co-ops really emerged out of like working class movement. But nowadays, maybe the working class don't have the same time on their hands or, you know, where where's the breaking point to be like, I'm going to do this unpaid for a while to build a better future. And how many people feel like they've got that time to do it, mm. even if they think it's a great idea? I think that kind of like speaks to the broader gentrification of community work or community activism um, generally and 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 the importance of, of time and, and the privilege of time. And as you're saying, like how co-op culture has changed in the UK from these more traditional like union driven um, factory floor type uh, organizing to like the more, uh, you know, post hipster um uh, type totally. type uh, uh, organizing but we're really interested in this community ownership fund not well, first of all because um, you know budgetary innovations coming from the Tories is a novel uh, thing in and of itself but there's so much um, anguish and frustration in uh, urban centres in Ireland with regards to corporate gentrification and uh, de- and uh, mm. you know intentional dereliction and also uh, demolition, and this idea of that communities could come together and raise capital, access financing, get match funding, and then potentially uh, buy their pub or or nightclub or building or whatever. Before we get into the details of the Community Ownership Fund, have you seen many people take over local pubs, local venues, things like that? So definitely pubs has been massive in the UK, um, but very much in rural settings, right? So it's like the last pub in the village and therefore it's not just a pub. It's, you know, Plunkett Foundation who are kind of the membership body for rural shops and pubs say it's so much more than a pub. So if you're the last pub, you're often like the community hub, you've got the choir night on, you do the vaccines down at the pub because it becomes the place because there's no other civic amenities left in these places a lot of the time. Um, So I think rural has kind of set an agenda for community ownership in a way that urban projects are looking at it. Like even my shop in Edinburgh, which is a bit bougie and all of that, you know, but we were looking at rural shops and going, how have they done it? We can learn something in the city about how to take some more ownership of our high street and maintain a sense of identity, which I think this is the crux of it. Like we are like, you talk about clone towns and stuff. You walk around, you could be anywhere, you know, with the Tesco's and the same shops and, or vacant derelict spaces that have just been abandoned. Um, so yeah, we definitely, I think we'd love to see, there's a few music venues on the books that I know are coming through that were actually already planned pre pandemic and are now like more than ever, need supported. Um, I know the Music Venues Trust are looking to really look at community ownership as a way to secure grassroots music venues going forward, which would be magic in general. Um, I guess I'm coming at it a little bit from the Scottish perspective as well, where we've had what's called the Scottish Land Fund for quite a few years, which is kind of like the Community Ownership Fund, but I'd say better. It's like up to a million pounds 95% the valuation of the property. Wow. Um, 
and not just the money, but like there's a huge, there is much more, you know, we passed the Land Reform Act and the Community Empowerment Act in Scotland. None of that's happening in England. None of that's happening at the moment, you know. So what's the agenda... The, what, what, what's the Community Empowerment Act? So a Community Empowerment Act gave communities specific rights to, um, rights to buy land, um, to express an interest in land and to access um, local, like publicly owned land as well as privately owned land. Um, and land reform kind of covers all sorts of things, including like the right to roam and outdoor access. Um, but all of that, like detail aside, there's a political agenda around challenging concentration of land ownership, which is what's causing these problems. You know, it's like big pension funds or the chief man at ASOS, you know, he owns like half of Scotland, your CEO of ASOS, like that's kind of nuts. So there is a political will to challenge concentration of land ownership. And then the land fund is just part of that policy to make it happen. Whereas with this Tory policy, I'm really excited to see what happens with it. We're going to make the most of it. But it doesn't feel like it's grounded in land reform. It doesn't mm. feel like it's grounded in challenging concentration of ownership, land what, ownership. What's actually, like, I'm just thinking if I, as a Tory government, what's in it for them? Why are they bringing this forward? Good question. Rural votes? They promised it in the manifesto. It was in the 2019 manifesto. Um I, I, you know, it's a really good question because I don't, I don't feel like it's based in like a broader philosophy. It feels a bit like a tick box, and like 150 million pounds for the whole of the UK is nothing. You know, you can spend 150 million pounds on one building or one bridge. You know, when you talk about assets and infrastructure, it's a lot of money to like we groups like the ones that we work with, and they might think, oh, that's a lot of money, but it really doesn't go that far in the grand scheme of things. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to down it. Obviously it's not even been launched yet. So I don't want to, <laughs> you know, we definitely could do so much with it. And we have a huge pipeline of organizations who are like chomping at the bit to buy their pubs or their high street assets or a lot of sports and leisure facilities who've been totally screwed by the pandemic, you know, have a huge opportunity to take them into community ownership and run them as a community, maybe more efficiently efficiently than like the local authority or a, a pure gym type model might have um yeah so i don't want to rubbish it but i am like you say i'm very interested in like what's the philosophy behind it what are we really trying to achieve with it in a shock development basically scotland is doing things better is what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's not the best but just I can't help but sit here and then like see it all through the different lenses and see how people see things differently um so in, practical, in practical terms then for like uh, a person in Ireland who's kind of coming to this very new, who probably knows the, you know, fundamentals of, of cooperative culture, things like that, and is looking at, you know, uh, being kind of disempowered in their community because there's just kind of international funds coming in, um, you know, buying up places and, and that don't have necessarily a, an emotional connection to the community itself. And they think, oh, what? Maybe we, maybe we could get together and buy and buy our local pub, or we could save that theatre, or whatever. People probably have an awful lot of fears around the logistics and the structural aspects of that, and like dreading the inevitable, you know, co-op WhatsApp group where there's just a load of like <laughs> melty people wrecking everyone's heads for the next five years. In practical terms, 
Um, are these because like you're saying, if there's a few hundred people coming together to, to buy things in in management structures and governance and things like that, does it get very complex and messy or is is that just the group of people coalescing around it? And then there's like a direct kind of staffing or management structure. Um, it really depends. I don't think it's as complex as people maybe worry about it being. Um, normally, I mean, it depends. But for a community club, you'd have the hundreds of people who are all members and investors and get involved at different levels and they tend to wear different hats. Um, but at the end of the day, you'll probably have a board of directors who will be maximum sort of nine to ten people, which is already quite a lot, and then potentially paid staff. So that's not that different from any other organization, actually, at the end of the day, especially if you're used to working in sort of more like third sector, charitable sector, where you'll have a board who kind of provide that strategic oversight, make sure things are ticking along. And then you have the staff who are paid to operationally manage things. And that works really well for the most part. And it means you can you can bring in volunteers as and when you need to, but you empower the staff. Um, and they can be organized in a hierarchical structure if that suits the organization better or in a non-hierarchical, like more like sociocratic kind of circles way of doing things. There's There's like lots of different ways to skin the cat, but it's all just about the fundamental principles of like, democracy and transparency, supporting each other, caring for your community. And that's the beauty of it, I think, is that it can be how you want it to work to an extent. Like, let's not get caught up too much in the paperwork. Um, think about what you're trying to achieve. That's the core of it, because if you've all got a shared mission, then these things work themselves out. If you don't actually know what you're set up to do, that's where it all falls apart. I think we have a really good example of it in Ireland with uh, Bowes. We have a football club that's community owned and it's it's run by the team, but it, it, everyone has a, an ownership. They get a brick from the dressing room or whatever. So it kind of, I think that's a really good example. Definitely. Like football, that's a good point. Like football owner supporters, trusts and stuff are quite a significant movement in their own right. Um, and also... Yeah, no, I agree with you. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> so um, before you go, Isla, this is the, the community. Obviously, Scotland has its own vibes going on. Um, uh, but the Community Ownership Fund uh, it gives people kind of 250, up to 250,000 match funding. Um, if what like what would you say in terms of all of the um, co-ops you've kind of seen set up or people venturing into different types of um building ownership or or club ownership or venue ownership or whatever. From your experience, what is the one piece of advice you would give to people looking to explore uh, starting a co-op? And what is the one thing that you would ask them to avoid? Ooh. Um, I think what I've even been thinking about this week is think long term. Like this is not a short term fix um for you know this is going to take ages it's going to be worth it and then you're going to be around for a really long time because it's going to be really hard to kill you off later that's the key messages co-ops are much harder to start and much harder to kill so like take your time and think long term this is not a quick fix but it has so i'm now like nine years into running a community shop almost a bit like how the hell did that happen but then you realize we're not going anywhere you know like this is actually awesome this is here for the long term. And a lot of the community ownership stuff that's happening at a bigger scale than my shop, it's all like, they're all thinking like, 
what do I want for my kids to grow up in this community? What do I want them to have that we don't have right now? Um, so yeah, it's about that longer, longer term, which is can be quite hard. I think life right now is changing so quickly. You know, like technology is changing so quickly. Like I can hardly, like we never could have done anything like this five years ago, even, you know, Mm. with the tech. So in some ways our lives are moving really fast, but when you're starting a project like this, you have to be thinking about it in terms of the long-term mission and plan and impact. What was the last bit? What are the pitfalls? What not to do. Yeah. What not to do. How long's your arm? (laughs) Don't lose faith. Is that just like me being too jolly? Like just keep up, keep up the smiles. Like this is genuinely true from working with it is like, keep finding the joy because there's going to be times where it's just really hard and you want to give up and you hate everything or not hate everything. That's harsh. But like (laughs) you just think like, why are we doing this? And then you find like those like nuggets of joy along the way that you just think, you know, none of this would, this wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for this. Um, so I think it's really important for folk because I get involved quite often at that governance legal side of things, which can be quite dry and you end up like any business, there's a lot of admin, but so find ways to use that structure, which has so much more fluidity in it than any traditional business structure to do some of the fun stuff as well. And like do the things that give you joy make you happy and remind yourself why you're doing it because like I said it's you're in it in it for the long term um so you need to keep finding little bits of joy along the way to stay motivated I reckon so that sounds really cheesy no that's fantastic <laughs> that's fantastic Isla McCullough uh, the program manager community share standards at Cooperatives UK thank you so much for all of that information and advice really appreciate it no problems Una and Andrea lovely to meet you And now it's time for Get in the Sea. What's getting in the sea this week, Andrea? No, this is not a new subject, but I feel like it needs to be reiterated as we come to this pivotal junction in our journey. Um, As we are, I hate to say, on our year anniversary, um, the comms from the government are just so defeating. They're just... So, like, I feel like in 20 years, when Reeling in the Years is still going because it's so good, that when we look back on this, it'll be like most of the issues that were spurred from this time are not actually issues because most of it is out of our control. And it's the management and communications of the people in charge. Like this week, for example, we're getting messages of like, we just need to hold tight Hold tight for what? Like, there's no measurables. There's no KPIs. There's no response. Like, if you're going to put responsibility on people and just ask them to hold tight, you need to be saying, can you hold tight and do this till we get to this? And then this will happen. There's none of that happening. It's like the key to good comms is to keep changing your comms, to keep it vibrant, to keep people engaged. That's not happening. You can't just keep coming out at every press conference going, please stick with us. Please stick with us. Please stick with us. No, it just, like that is just losing people. And like we're three months into a lockdown now, a severe lockdown of level five. And our case numbers, whilst they've gone down, they've they've just uh, stopped kind of around five, six hundred. And 
the that's because people are getting tired. They've nothing to aim for. They've no goals. They're not being given any carrots. Um, and like, I'm I'm not going to use the word spin, but like you can spin stuff to keep people engaged. And there just seems to be no foresight and no um, no desire or want to try and get people on board anymore and to try and I suppose give the light of the tunnel um it's it's moment in the sun so I think that the absolute cons from the Irish government needs to get in the sea. Are you advocating for a return of the strategic communications unit? Maybe if it was better (laughs) (laughs) like because we need something. And now it's bananas. I'm taking It's Bananas this week, um, if that's okay. Well, can you say it right first? It's Bananas. <laughs> that's Andrew saying it's Bananas. Oh. It has to be a bit more high-pitched. It's like, oh my God, it's it's Bananas. Okay, it's Bananas. Um, what is Bananas this week is the reoccurring banana peel of uh, the Phoenix Park gates opening and closing. <clears throat> and uh, the OPW has suggested certain kind of gate closures and all that kind of stuff. But Leo Vradker, uh, who just happens to get elected in Castlenock, has come out to bat for his constituency. Obviously, as Thornish the uh, one would imagine, uh, one would have oversight on national politics and policies and not assuming the stance of a councillor in the type of parochial parish pump politics that you say your party neglects um, or rejects rather. Uh, certainly not neglecting it here. And so he's just basically saying, no, it's not fair for people in Castlenock and la la la. And I just feel like the Phoenix Park is a national immunity. It should be available to people all over the country when we can travel, all over the city. It's, you know, frequently called the lungs of the city and all that kind of stuff. Get the fucking cars out of that park and stop advocating for people who just want to like spin into town from Castle Knock Gate or whatever, go around. And like, I'm sorry if it's an inconvenience. Like, and and of course, it goes without saying that like, older people who maybe drive for a short distance there to the park, that's totally grand. There are car parks there. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's fine. But like, maintaining it as this rat run so that people from Dublin 15 can get into town quicker that's not what the Phoenix Park is there for. It maybe started what? out. It's it's not a motorway. It, it maybe oh. started out as something different. Obviously, you know, it wasn't always a public amenity for sure. But that's what ha- it has become, and that's what should be preserved. And if you want to put like little bits of transport in there, like make the transport better in Dublin Fifteen. Then, anyway, that's bananas. And now our fave bits. Hit me with your fave bits. I'm a little bit lighter on fave bits this week. Um, I was so over, my cup overfloweth last week 
but there are some good stuff. First up, St. Patrick's Day, St. Patrick's Festival celebration is on Wednesday at 6.30 RTE 1. Uh, it is directed by my good friend Martin Gohan. Shout out to Martin. Um, and by all accounts, it is going to be an absolute hooli. It is uh, loads of performances. He's been up and down uh, the country filming uh, loads of gorge bits for that so I love a little appointment to view with other people so I shot like we've been calling for that a little bit like with don't you know the joy of other voice where you sit down and other people are watching at the same time so there is uh, performances poetry lovely things so that will be our new uh, St. Patrick's Day parade this year 6.30 also on a very different uh, schism uh, I happened to watch Living with Lucy. I, it's obviously a repeat, um, but it was with Gemma Collins. And I've never really encountered the joy of Gemma Collins. She is banana town uh, fab. And it was a remind like, it's a, such, I was like, it's really great that this is an Irish production because it's such a good production. And I, I'm really getting into Irish TV. Like between Eating with the Enemy and Living with Lucy, there's some great TV being made in Ireland. So big up Irish TV. And finally, Beyonce's Chaparelli look at the Grammys was nothing but, did you know that emoji where they're dribbling down their, down just down their chin <laughs> or sweating for, from their mouth, as uh, Sinead from the National Gallery says. Uh, so I was sweating from my mouth. Uh, looking at that look, it was just so phenomenal, and I'm obsessed with Chiaparelli's stuff in general. Um, and yeah, that's it, really. Here are my five bits. Cool. My five bits this week. Uh, we were talking about the Tommy Tiernan show last week, and it was actually in our five bits, one of the shows. And you uh, will be pleased, maybe I don't know, to learn that um, the Tommy Tiernan show that particular episode uh, surpassed the Late Late Show in ratings. Yowza. That's a big story there out in Montrose where people actually working in the office. Um, well, I feel like not to, I know this is five bits time and not to rain on your five bit, but the Late Late Show is just so jaded. I think that it's really hard to do a talk show like The Late Late Show in a pandemic. I think Ryan Tuberty actually did some of the best broadcasting of his career early on on The Late Late Show when the audience went. But the Tommy Tiernan show last uh, weekend got 453,000 viewers, um, which was more than The Late Late Show. Yeah, and I guess it's just kind of refreshing, you know, when something comes along like this that is different, that, you know, has a little bit more risk to it, that people are coming on to talk just because they're interesting, not necessarily because they have something to plug and they're not on the promo trail. It just creates a different dynamic and then it makes traditionally formatted talk shows look um, very static, I suppose. I don't know if this is fair to say, but I my problem with The Late Late Show is that it's Friday night. I'm sitting down with a glass of wine. I want to get into like an entertainment mode. And it's su- such an emotional journey because one, you could be watching a performance of this deadly band. And then next of all, it's a really sad story. And then it's like a tragic intervention. And then there's like a game show where they give away prizes. And then you're like, it's like, I don't know what my emotions are and I know I can have a a varied array of emotions but when you sit down for something you want to sit down into a mode Mm. yeah I guess it's always has that weird balance right where people want entertainment but then a whole other bunch of people kind of give out about the fact that 
you know, it used to be serious. And like when Gay Byrne was doing it, it was like the mood of the nation, blah, blah. Like those eras are gone, you know? So I think it's like, it's very difficult to really... All the people all the time you have. I feel like it's lost. It's, it's, it's point. Yeah. I think that what is successful about the Tommy Tiernan show is that it's that classic thing where the idea actually feels quite niche and there's, it's very specific, but the, the success that ensues from that is is very large. So it it's kind of a lesson in specificity. And if you have a good idea, stick with that good idea. Whereas obviously something like The Late Late Show, which is trying to reach an appeal to so many people. Mm. But <clears throat> yeah, I suppose the through line there isn't as present, but the power they're niche. different animals. They're different beasts. Yeah. Um, my other fave bit, Wolf Walkers getting nominated for an Oscar. Woohoo! Congrats to Cartoon Saloon. One of my favourite films over the last year, I think. I really, really enjoyed it and I love their whole vibe. Um, You've been talking about it for so long and I still haven't watched it. Yeah, you should totally watch it. It's on, oh shit, I can't remember whether it's on Apple TV or Prime. Prime, I think. I don't sign up to either of those. Okay, great. (laughs) Um, And then my other fave bit is, you know, when you just want to switch off, but you don't want to watch something completely trash. But you don't you, watch Friends again. <laughs> no, I can't. I, no. And, um, and you also, but you also want to be kind of transported somewhere else, but you don't want to be challenged too much. Um, Last Chance You, the basketball edition on Netflix. Like, I love, you know, anything to do with like these sport documentaries where it's like this person's life is hard but they play basketball and maybe they'll have a shot at something because America is fucked and these are the only ways that you can get out um, obviously that's quite a dark uh, summation of things but uh, and I also love just watching skilled athletes uh, but this is a really good one you know not that much happens it's a very um, gentle incline uh, story-wise, the trajectory of it, but some of the basketballers are amazing. So if you need that little escape, that's not going to make you hate the world. It might make you hate just education inequality, but um, I would have a go, have a go at this. And my book of the week is—it's not a book that I've read this week. Um, I read it a good while ago. Uh, but it's one that I've been consistently recommending to people and buying for people. And on foot of uh, the state investing in Stripe to the tune of 50 million euro or something, which I'm kind of like, if it's worth like 95 billion euro, why does it need money? Um, but I just, I guess I just don't understand, um, you know, the, the the house of cards that is big tech. But anyway. It's the round of investments. We need more investment to make our other investments keep standing. Yeah. Oh God, the worst. Anyway, um, so that's Stripe. And um, the book is that I'm recommending is Uncanny Valley by Anna Wiener. It is a brilliant memoir basically about this young woman who was working in the publishing industry in New York and kind of realising at the time that a lot of her peers and contemporaries were working in tech and they were basically making loads of money and they were all moving to San Francisco and and so she just went, fuck it, like maybe I'll do that too. And she just r- writes this very, very honest memoir about her experience in that uh, ecosystem. 
And, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that sometimes one can gravitate towards books to like confirm your own biases. Um, and, and and this book kind of does that. But I suppose it means a lot more because it's not like polemic. It's this person's memoir and their experience in it. But one of my favourite parts of it, not one of my favourite parts, one of the very interesting part of it is that she's friends with this kind of unnamed tech guy. And uh, at one point they're hanging out and he gets a phone call and the phone call is basically to kind of inform him that whatever has happened, maybe the uh, with whatever funding round or something that he has become a billionaire. Um, and, it, you know, if you read into it, this person is very obviously Patrick Collison from Stripe. And uh, it brought me back to one of my favourite ever tech bro tweets, um, which is from Patrick Collison. Obviously, the, the Collison brothers are extraordinarily successful and fair play to them and all that kind of stuff. But I was like, I wonder if that tweet is still there. So I went looking for it and it's still there. And it's from April 13th, 2015. There's actually a typo in it. I'll skip over the typo. The typo makes it funnier. But anyway, making books shorter would effectively increase the rate at which we can learn. And it's he's basically like does this thread on advocating for how to make books sh- shorter <laughs> so that people could read more books. Um, he follows it up with, or put another way, the broken incentives today are probably having or more the rate at which you can learn. So he's kind of making this analogy of like things are broken in society, and if they were fixed, you would learn more. But you know, but frames this in like shorter books would be, but I mean. <laughs> It's it's such a great uh, captures so greatly how a lot of people um, in tech think about what they understand about the world or what they don't understand about the world. So congratulations to Stripe who are creating one thousand jobs in Ireland uh, over the next few years. Uh, it, it reminds me of those uh, Instagram things where like, do you want to read your book in twenty minutes? We'll show you how to read it, so you don't even have to like look at the pages. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Optimize the self. Actualize the self. Work forever, even though technology was meant to make work obsolete. (laughs) Keep going. Make more billions. Um, Yeah. So Uncanny Valley is a memoir. Highly recommend. Actually, Universal have optioned it. Uh, I think Elizabeth Banks is producing the movie adaptation. Okay. So this podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and the Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all of our design. This week's tuna chicken roll is the Blessed Madonna. We lost dancing. It's a very uh, introspective, retrospective, very spective uh, version of what this year has been for dancing and the hope for tomorrow. And it ends with like, what comes next will be tremendous and that might not be the actual word but it's basically very optimistic so i'm sweating for a dance i know i never mention it uh, so that's the six tuna chicken off excellent i've been una malali i've been andrea horan this has been united ireland and that was buying your boozer we've lost dancing
this year we've had to lose our space we've lost dancing we've lost the hugs with friends and and people that we loved all these things that we took for granted we've lost dancing If I can live through We've lost dancing This next six months We've lost dancing Day by day We've lost dancing If I can live through this We've lost dancing What comes next Will be Marvelous Marvelous. <laughs> 